And before us is an interesting passage this morning. Um, it has been debated fairly often by Christians as to what exactly is going on with this text. Uh, certainly, uh, definitely within the book of James, it is one of the more difficult passages to interpret because there are a couple of main di- uh, different directions that we could go with. So two of these main positions are really concerning the word sick that you see there in verse 14. When he says, is anyone among you sick? Well, what does he mean by sick? Some people will say that if you look at the word, it actually doesn't mean sick in terms of an illness. It really could just mean an overall wellness. So maybe it doesn't exactly mean sickness in the sense that you're laid up in bed. It could mean some sort of spiritual malady, some sort of unwellness on that side. So as we come to this passage you can almost just take the fork in the road and go one way or go the other way and it'll flavor the way you think about this passage. But the position that I've taken, just to let you know up front, is that I think what James is doing is initially he's talking about physical sickness. And that physical sickness really does end up flavoring the rest of the discussion. But James also brings in this spiritual element um, that is involved with this sickness somehow. So you can probably tell in my body language, it it can be confusing. Depending on how we look at this, it can be a little difficult. I don't think it's really a slam dunk on either side um, of that fork if you're going to take whichever way you go. But I do think that he is talking about physical sickness. I think that's the natural reading. But then he does get into maybe some spiritual sickness that might be incorporated within the physical Sickness. So, look with me again at James chapter 5. I'll go ahead and read the passage again. Verse 14 to 18. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven. So you see how he's naturally tying in some sort of spiritual malady. He's saying, is anybody sick? Yeah, but then bring the elders and then all of a sudden he's talking about sin. So there is a connection here. Verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So the first point that I want to show you from this text this morning, I didn't put it on the back of your bulletin, that was by accident, but the first point here this morning is to call for the elders of the church. Verses 14 to 15. It's fairly revealing that in times of distress, it's revealing as to who we go to first, right? So if you see ghosts, the question is, who are you going to call ghost busters, right? Or when you're considering your sickness, if you're sick, who are you going to call? Well, James seems to indicate that you're going to call the elders of the church, But when you're in this sort of distressing period, whatever it is, if you're in a stressful financial situation, maybe you call the bank. If you've been hit by a car, you would call the EMT or have somebody do that for you. If your house was broken into, you call the police. If your child is sick, we call the doctor. And those all may be wise and good calls to make, and they certainly would be. But if you woke up tomorrow morning 
and you were unable to move, gravely sick, couldn't even make the phone call, who would you have your family call first? Who would you have your family call second? Who would you have your family call third? Some of you can probably tell where I'm going with this and be sure. I'm not saying that you shouldn't make the obvious phone call to your doctor. Call your doctor. Call 911. But would it cross your mind, I wonder, to call the elders of the church? Isn't it interesting the way that James begins verse 14? Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. James is clear that one of the calls that you should make, and James doesn't have a telephone. He's saying that you should just call, beckon them, summon the elders to yourself at some point. James is clear that one of the first calls that we should be making is to the elders of the church. I think the first question we need to deal with, though, is is what kind of sickness this is. What kind of sickness warrants the calling of the elders of the church? Like I mentioned a minute ago, I do think that this is physical sickness. And so to go with our illustration, you wake up tomorrow morning and you're not feeling well. well. Well, what is the threshold of when you call the elders of the church? When you say, yeah, we need to go have... Go ahead and have the elders come to us, or no, I think we'll be fine. There's at least one main indication in the text that I think displays what kind of sickness level James is envisioning here, and that is the person is not well enough themselves to go to the elders on his or her own. They actually need the elders to come to them. You see that, don't you? Is anyone sick? You call for the elders of the church. He doesn't say that you yourself go to the elders, he says you call for them. They are so sick that they cannot get out of bed. Men, this does not mean when you have a man cold that you call for the elders of the church. If you cannot get out of bed and you are sick and lying there and the doctors aren't sure what to do, it is a good time to call for the elders of the church. Or maybe in our context we would think, when you're in the hospital and you're there and things have settled down, call for the elders of the church to come. Now let me slip something in here for free concerning all of you, Windsor Christian Fellowship, and the sicknesses that you may have and if you land in the hospital. In my four years here, going into my fifth year as the lead pastor, there have been at least two occasions where members of the church have been hospitalized and nobody told me. So I saw them one Sunday. They went to the hospital in the middle of the week. Then they came back the next Sunday and said, oh yeah, I was in the hospital this week. Like, imagine how that makes me feel. And then I found out from their family or they ended up telling me that next Sunday. That doesn't work for me, okay? Everybody say okay. Okay. If you're a member of this church and you are sick in the hospital, let me know. Okay? Send me a telegram, something. Let me know that you are there. Do we have an accord? Yes. Okay. Do we have an accord? Yes. All right. Thank you. I count it a privilege and a responsibility to come and to pray for you. You might not anoint you with oil, but we will certainly pray for you. If you are really laid up, call for the elders of the church. Don't call for a faith healer that you might see on TV. You don't call for Benny Hinn. You call for the elders of your church to come and to pray for you, and if necessary, to announce, anoint you with oil. But who are the elders of the church? Who are the elders that you're supposed to call? I've just asked you to call for me if if you are in the hospital or if you are really laid up. But four years ago, Windsor Christian Fellowship 
didn't have a plurality of elders here. A plurality, several men or pastors overseeing the congregation. But now that we do, thinking it's biblical and right to have several men who are leading the church, we made the move from having a single solo pastor to having two or more pastors who lead the church. And so at the moment, Mike Sherman and I are in the office of an elder, and we hope in the years to come to be adding more and more men to that, that there would be three, four, five elders who are pastoring and caring for you. One of the ways that we do this is that we pray for you when we are sick. In the model of Acts chapter 6, when the apostles set apart all of those deacons, those seven deacons, right? They set those guys apart. Why? So that they could give themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. And so part of why the elders need to be set apart from the physical, menial things around the church is so that they can be set apart to minister the word of God and to have the time to come to you when you are ill, to pray with you. So according to this text, there are at least two things that you should do, or the elders should do, and that's we should pray for you, and that we should anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. Look again at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so we're going to come to you and we're going to pray for you. We're going to ask God to heal you. If you're in bed with a deadly disease, severely laid up, we're going to come to you and ask that God, the great physician, would heal you miraculously. I mean, how many times have you heard of God's people being prayed for and they've been miraculously healed, right? Riddled with cancer. They go back to their next appointment and the doctor can't explain it. How many times have you heard of that sort of situation? I mean, let this text give you hope, Christian. You serve a God who can heal any malady that you may have. If Jesus got out of the grave, then that means that he is sovereign over any kind of cancer cells in your body. He is sovereign over diabetes. He is sovereign over health issues and your heart attack. Whatever it is, he is sovereign over all that. Jesus got out of the grave. Surely he can heal. And that is why when we consider the sovereignty of God in all of this, that we have to be sure to recognize what others have recognized. And we can often say, well, why pray to God if he is sovereign and he is allowing me to go through this suffering right now and this sickness. Well, the real question is, why would you pray if God isn't sovereign? Right? Why would you pray if God's not sovereign? If he can't really control what's going on, if he doesn't control the cancer cells, if he doesn't control what's going on in your heart, let this text give you hope. In this specific text, have the elders go to your bedside and to pray. We have a God who delights in healing. Something that he does over and over again. I mean, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you just watch Jesus walk through all of these different situations. And what is he doing? He's healing people. And he's healing them in different ways. He's healing blindness, and he's healing the paralytic. He's healing the woman with the issue of blood. There were so many times that Jesus healed. But what we always have to remember is when the elders come, and maybe it is you who's laid up, Well, you need to remember, and the elders need to remember, that our prayer is in the context of His will. Like it's always nestled in God's will. 
Sometimes it is simply not his will to save an individual from death. That he has a, a plan behind their sickness for that person and for those watching that he desires to show through the sickness. Like far too often, we let the tragedy of sickness negatively affect our view of God instead of letting our view of God positively affect our view of the sickness. We need to remember about, what we need to remember about our God is what James says further up in James 5 that he is full of compassion and merciful. That yes, He is sovereign. And yes, He is full of compassion and mercy for His children. And so let that knowledge then flavor your sickness. That I'm sick right now, but I have a good, merciful, compassionate God. So place your prayer in the context of the will of that God. But be sure to pray and ask the elders to pray in hope and in faith that God will work in a specific situation that you're praying about. So you call the elders of the church, we will pray, but then verse 14 again, there's that second thing that they do, anointing Him with oil in the name of the Lord. For those of you who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, this would be one of their proof texts for what they call extreme unction or last rites where the priest comes and anoints a person before they die. But when you consider what's going on within this passage, is that a right proof text for that? Like The anointing for death? That's not what's happening here. This is anointing for life, for hope that God is going to work in this person's uh, situation, in their illness. They are not anointing them for death or to absolve them from sin right before they die. Let's make sure we anoint them with oil so they're clear. That's not what we're doing at all. Nor is this a proof text to have some sort of crazy healing rally in the church. Like throwing oil all over the place and slapping people on the head. I just saw that Benny Hinn, the TV evangelist, is now selling anointing oil. Don't buy any. The third thing that this isn't a proof text for, ladies, is your use of essential oils. You guys know what those essential oil things are? But it's not a proof text for that either. What couldn't be more obvious is that this is a private matter between the elders of the church and the sick person, isn't it? This isn't some big rally. This is between the elders and the private, the the individual. Family and church family may be around, but the elders go into the room, they pray with the person, they anoint them with oil, and they trust God to do a miraculous Work, And I know that many of you are probably interested in this because it's not something that we often see, is it? Like this anointing with oil uh, is not something that maybe many of you have ever even seen done. I mean, I've been in the church for 31 years of my life, brought up in a Christian home, studied for ministry, and now I'm a pastor, and I've never seen this done, I don't think. And so the question for me anyway... Is this something that the elders of Windsor Christian Fellowship should do? And after thinking through it some this week, I think that it probably is something that we should do, at least in some cases. Not for the stomach bugs, not for the man colds, not for the survivable injuries like a broken arm, but for the person who is unable to get out of their bed with a serious, life-threatening malady. I think that we should. 
Anointing is used all over the Bible. If you have read your Bible, you know that there are plenty of different anointings that you see all throughout it, specifically in the Old Testament. But oil is used to make somebody beautiful. You can imagine in a Middle Eastern context where it's very dry and hot that the oil on your skin would feel good. It was used for guests, for healing and hygiene. You remember that the Good Samaritan, when he took up that Jewish man and brought him to the inn, one of the things that he had done is he put oil on the man. So it can be used for healing and hygiene. It can be used to prepare somebody for death. It can be used for exorcism. You see that in Matthew. For other religious purposes within the temple or to install leaders like the priests and the kings. And in all of those scenarios, you can see that these people are being set apart. The anointing is a special moment for them. It's making them more beautiful. It's, uh, it's marking a guest off in your home, or it's marking off the dead and, and, and preparing them for their grave or worship purposes or installing a king. So this anointing is setting this person apart which I think is what's happening in our text this morning. That the elders have been called to this person's bedside, they pray, and they anoint the person with oil, setting them aside in a very special way, marking them off symbolically. And notice that it is not the oil that has any power in it. It does not. What it does, though, is signify a special set apartness. Listen to what one author said. In the Bible, anointing signifies a special consecration to the Lord. Thus, elders are to place oil on ill Christians in order to set them apart for God's special favor. So let me give you an illustration, a parallel, between baptism and oil. So for instance, when you are baptized, we are very clear that the baptism does not save you. God saves you, He gives you faith, He opens your eyes, regenerates your heart, and then the baptism is an outward sign that all of that has happened on the inside. And so with the anointing of oil, it is not the oil that saves you from further sickness or dying. It is the prayer of faith that God hears, and He acts according to His will, regardless of if He heals or not. And so the anointing oil is merely, merely a signifier that you have been set apart. And you have been anointed, you have been prayed for in this way. And so it says to God from the elders of the church that we have our sight specifically set on this beloved brother or sister. We have set them apart before us to pray for them. And we beg God to bring healing and then we trust Him for whatever He's going to do. And then following all of this, all of this prayer and anointing, what does James say in verse 15? And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Listen to Thomas Watson again that Dan read on the front of your bulletin. Without faith, it is speaking, not prayer, praying. Faith is the breath of prayer. Prayer is dead unless faith breathes in it. Faith is a necessary requisite in prayer. The oil of the sanctuary was made up of several sweet spices, pure myrrh, cassia, cinnamon. Faith is the chief spice or ingredient in prayer, which makes it go up to the Lord as sweet incense. Let him ask in faith. 
And so this prayer that is offered up in faith is the prayer that will save. If the elders show up and offer some perfunctory, faithless prayer, it is mere words. And so when the elders come, Lord willing, we do not come offering perfunctory prayers. We come in offering prayers in faith to our God and we offer the prayer of faith on behalf of the sick and we trust the results to God. But we need to be very clear because if you read James, it can be very easy to read that as an if-then. So if you do this, then your wellness will automatically happen. I think we do need to nuance this well with other passages. I think we need to nuance this with the Apostle Paul that God gave a thorn in the flesh to that many people think is some sort of physical malady. And that Paul prayed three times. And what does God say? No, I'm not going to heal you. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Right? Or you think of Paul. And of course, Paul would have been a great man of faith. But Trophimus, he says that he left him sick. Right? Or you think of Timothy. He tells Timothy to take a little wine for your stomach's sake because he was not well. And you would automatically think, well, Paul is a great man of faith. Surely he would be able to heal these ones. Well, sometimes, very simply, it is not God's will that the healing would come. Another author has said, the faith exercised in prayer is faith in the God who sovereignly accomplishes His will. When we pray, our faith recognizes explicitly or implicitly the overruling providential purposes of God. And there are those glorious times that in His providence, He raises the sick. He raises them, according to verse 15. Because according to this verse, if healing is given, it's got to be all by the hand of the Sovereign Lord. James says, the Lord will raise you up, right? It's not the elders come and pray and anoint, and then the elders raise you up. It's not that at all. It's that the Lord will raise you up. Like when Jesus goes and raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Like when Jesus goes to Jairus' daughter, who they all think is dead, and Jesus raises the little girl up, daughter arrives, right? When Jesus raises up a person who has been prayed for and set apart with anointing by the elders, it must be clear that nobody gets the glory except for Jesus, the one who does the raising. So if Mike and I go to your bedside and we pray the prayer of faith and we anoint with oil and that person is raised up that afternoon, we in no way get the glory for that. Jesus gets the glory for that. There was a situation a couple years ago. Some of you remember this, but um, Dewey Baker, who used to come to this church, he, he went missing for a few hours at night. And it was like the whole town was out looking for him. And at one point, I went in uh, to pray with his wife, Judy. And so we, we got done praying. And like 10 seconds later, Dewey was found. So do I get the glory for that? No, we prayed, we asked God, but God worked right through that. But it wasn't as though I get any of the credit. No, not in any way. But that God gets the credit. So without even skipping a beat, though, James seems to connect the physical sickness that we experience with the spiritual sickness that we experience. Look again at the end of verse 15. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It's interesting, isn't it? If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It's an interesting thing to think about. The impact of our sins 
on our health. We need to be careful to understand the way that our sin affects our health. There is a case, and you probably remember, of the man born blind. And the disciples ask Jesus, don't they? They say, who sinned? This this person's parents or, or this guy? Which one of them sinned that he is blind? And what does Jesus say? He says, none of them. This man was born blind for the glory of God. And so we take from that that physical ailments are not always the result of sin. But then there are other passages like 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul is talking about communion and those who took communion and ended up really sick physically and even died because they were taking communion unlawfully seems to indicate that there are times that there is a connection between sickness and illness and our sin. So fundamentally, sickness came into the world as a result of sin. On, on a broad level, sickness exists because of sin. But on a specific level, the illness that you get may or may not be related to your sin at all. But James says, if you commit sins, you'll be forgiven. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so my second major point is, confess your sins and pray for one another. Okay, so in light of this whole scenario of a person being sick and being prayed for and anointed by the elders, James now opens it up to the congregation. So you call for the elders, they pray and anoint. That's what they do. But what does the congregation do? The congregation, they begin to confess their sins to one another. And they pray for one another that their prayers for healing might not be hindered. The unrighteous ones who would go before the Lord with unconfessed sins, they will not be heard. But the ones who go before the Lord having confessed their sins to their brothers and sisters and to God, their prayers will not be hindered. After all, James says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Not the prayer of the one who lives in a strain of unconfessed sin. So Christian, if you have all of this unconfessed sin before you and the Lord, and you are refusing to acknowledge your sin before Him, He is not going to hear you. Psalm 66 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Or Isaiah 59.2 But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear James has already told us we have not because we ask wrongly to spend it on our passions. And so the congregation then is told to confess their sins to one another, to pray. The result is a holy people who are offering sincere prayers to a holy and sincere God that the prayer of the righteous ones, the church, has great power as it is working. So the whole concept... Of going, if again, if you grew up in a Roman Catholic church, and if you went to confession, and you sat in a booth with a man and confessed your sin, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been 33 days since my last confession. And then you go into all of your sins that you've committed since then. That's not that bad of a thing to do. However, as R.C. Sproul has said, so long as you turn to the priest after that and say, now it's your turn. 
Because confessing sin to one another is a good thing. It is something that God has called us to. When was the last time you confessed your sin to one another? You have all these one another statements within the church. When was the last time that you got together and you confessed your sin? Brother, sister, I have hurt you directly. Sin within the family. Husband, wife, children. I have hurt you directly. When was the last time you've done that? I don't think the Lord is hearing our prayers if there's all this unconfessed sin in our context. So you consider this scenario. That one of our members is desperately sick. You're that sick person. Picture yourself as them. Mike Sherman and I come and we pray over you. We pray in faith that God will heal you. We anoint you with oil symbolizing that you are set apart for prayer. And the rest of the brothers and sisters of the church, what are they doing? They begin confessing. They start praying for one another. They start confessing their sins to one another. Even sins that they've committed, that they're simply sharing to receive accountability. They confess and they pray together. And as those who have prayed for one another and have confessed to one another, they then turn and pray for you, the one who is sick, the one that is specially set apart for prayer. And we leave it in the hands of God, trusting what James says here, that the, the, the prayers of the righteous ones will be heard. And so in this scenario, what I want you to do is to think of all of the good that has come through your sickness. You're the one that's laid up in bed. Well, God is teaching you. And He's drawing you close to Himself. He's teaching you dependence. The elders of the church, they've done what they're called to do. They're honoring the Lord. The church is confessing their sin to one another and praying with another. They're honoring the Lord. God is doing the work that only He can do. He is the one acting and raising up or taking you home with Him. How good is that? That as a result of something as terrible as sickness, so much good can come. So much spiritual healing can come in the context of the church as the result of one brother or sister being unwell. It is only God who can do this. Only God can take suffering of one member of the church and bring about the confession of the rest of the church through it. I love that. I love it because we're so tempted when we're sick to feel isolated. That nobody is thinking about us or praying for us. Nobody's visiting us and we feel alone. But this is not how it's supposed to be. That somebody who is unwell actually catapults the church and her leaders into action. And God may heal you. And He may not heal you. But in the process of your sickness, He brings about healing in the Christian community. The church. The greatest work. He does. But like he so often does, James closes with an illustration of what it would look like to be a church of prayer warriors with the example of the great prophet Elijah. Look at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Notice that. Don't miss that. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Like we often think, when we read about Elijah in 1 Kings, mainly chapter 17, 18, 19, we think, man, this is Elijah. 
This is the great prophet of the Lord. He went up to heaven in a chariot of fire. He defeated the 450 prophets of Baal. He raised up a dead boy. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses. When you think of prophets, Elijah is like sitting at the head of the table, isn't he? But for James, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Brothers and sisters, do you feel weak? Elijah felt weak. Do you feel like your prayers aren't going past the ceiling? Elijah felt that way too. You feel like it's all crumbling in around you? It certainly all was going on for Elijah. And you can read about Elijah and you can see the troubles that he had and the struggles that he had with Jezebel and her husband Ahab. But at the end of the day, Elijah was made of flesh and bone just like us. And there's another similarity too. God, he has the same exact God as us. James sheds light here on the prayer life of Elijah that the book of 1 Kings almost seems to leave out. And what's probably happening is James is leaning on some sort of oral tradition concerning the information that he has. Although there is certainly indication that Elijah prayed in chapter 17, verse 1, 18, 1, and especially chapter 18, 42 of 1 Kings, where it says that Elijah, he bowed to the earth and put his face between his knees. That's not yoga. He is praying. Okay? So he prays, and he prays fervently. He prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. He prayed that it would rain, and it rained. I like what one author said. Elijah is an example of a prayer for no rain, and later a prayer for rain, both of which God granted. God used Elijah to accomplish his own will and agenda. Elijah was his instrument. Prayer does not move a reluctant God, but channels His will and purposes through His children. Don't you so often feel like when you're praying and you're praying to God, sometimes it's easy to view Him as a reluctant God. But He is not. He channels His will and His purposes through His children as they pray. As we close, I want you to consider this morning just the broad application of what it will look like for you to pray with and for one another and to confess your sin to one another. Are those two specific areas of discipline that you practice with one another? Do you pray for each other? As, as a church, do you, do you pray for one another? Do you have membership directories that you're going through to pray for each other? Do you have just a membership role with everybody's name on it that you're walking through and praying for one another? We just printed off these uh, directories to add to the ones you already have. Pray. Go through with your family and pray for the people who make up the church. And do you confess your sin to one another? The implication here would be that we as a family, a faith family, we love each other enough to have these conversations. We love each other enough to depend and to have accountability with one another, to confess our sins and to trust that with one another. And we're willing to forgive each other, to go before the Lord, confessing to each other and confessing to Him. Do you pray for one another? Do you confess your sin to one another? May God help us too.
Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you that 